always wanted to, always wanted to connect one of these things. Now I know what it's like. Um, you know, I have to thank Dr. Stead. Uh, he said I was his student, and he then quickly disavowed anything I might say. Um, he is responsible for what I say in one sense, and that's the sense that uh, when I came here as a student, I was not in the habit of thinking. Some of you can relate to that. And uh, Dr. Stead challenged me to think and to look at things biblically, and that's what I'm going to try and do today. It's interesting, Dave Beto, one of my students, um, right before he went on, said, you know, I've been trying to get you up there for three years, and now I'm scared to death for what you're going to say. Um, well, we'll see. <clears throat> normally, those of you who know me know that normally I would start with some, uh, some jokes that would be particularly hilarious. <laughs> but um, I figured this would be my only invitation to speak in chapel, and uh, so I don't want to waste time with that. So what I want you to do is just picture in your mind some really neat jokes and just assume that I've already said them. And we'll just move on. <clears throat> what I want to do today, rather than take a particular passage of Scripture and, uh, and sort of be an expository preacher, which I'm not, uh, don't claim to be, what I want to do is I want to ask you some questions today. What I'm going to ask of you is, in listening to those questions, I'm going to ask you to think. And I'm going to ask you to consider. Um, I know that's uncomfortable, but that's what I'm going to ask today, is that you listen to what I have to say and think. The, uh, the topic, so to speak, of uh, what I have to say today is this. Are you a Christian American or an American Christian? Are you a Christian American or an American Christian? And what do I mean by that? That is, which term is the essence of who you are and which is an added description? Which is an adjective, a secondary thing, and which is the essence of who you are? For example, we might uh, see a dog and we might say that's a black dog or a white dog or that's a, a furry dog or a, a hairless dog or that's a dog with a long tail or a dog with a short tail. But ultimately, it is a dog. Or we might see a car and we might say that's a Ford or that's a Chevrolet or that's a Pontiac or whatever. But ultimately, it is a car. And the other part is a mere description of what it is in essence. We might say uh, that's a uh, tall male or a short male. That is a blonde female or a brunette female. But ultimately, what are they in essence? Are you a Christian American or an American Christian? You know, Paul referred to himself in Scripture. It's interesting, if you look at the beginning of each of the epistles, Paul always referred to himself as an apostle or bondservant of Christ. So did Peter, so did James, so did Jude, if you look at the beginning of those epistles. And Paul deals with his national and racial background in Philippians 3, as Dr. MacArthur pointed out to us a few weeks ago. And if you recall, he refers to that ultimately as loss, as rubbish. His identity was as an apostle or bondservant 
of Christ. And I'm going to suggest to you today that this should be true of us in every area of our lives. Not just in some of the, the, uh, the areas that are popularly laid out, but in every area of life, including politically. And the primary question is this. Do you think like an American politically or like a Christian? And secondly, is there a distinction? Do you recognize a distinction? Do you think like an American politically or like a Christian? And do you even see a distinction? There are two passages in the New Testament that deal in large measure uh, with politics. And they're very well known. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. But I want to point out something very interesting. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans 12. Those of us who have uh, sat under the ministry of Dr. MacArthur know that in Romans, Paul spends the first 11 chapters laying out theology, some very important information that, I, that tells us who we are, that identifies us as believers and tells us what that means. And then in chapter 12... He says this in verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, now the therefore, as Dr. MacArthur will tell you, refers to all this theology that he's just laid out to identify us as believers. And he says, therefore, and then he's going to follow the next few chapters by saying, this is how you ought to live. Here you are positionally, you're a Christian, you're a believer in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Therefore, how should you live? And he begins that in chapter 12. And we want to look at a, at a couple of things that are very important. Would everyone stand, please, in honor of God's Word, and let's read this together. Romans 12.1 I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, to this age, to this world system. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay. It's as far as we're going right now. Now, Paul then establishes theologically that we are positionally believers in Christ, that we are Christians. And then he says, because of this, there's a way that we ought to live. Therefore, you should do these things. Now, I want you to notice something. This is chapter 12. Chapter 13 is the passage that is typically dealt with concerning politics. And, well, well, you should deal with it because it is the predominant view of the New Testament in this area. But chapter 13 follows chapter 12. And the chapter division is artificial. The chapter division is man-made. It's inserted. Chapter 13 is a continuation of chapter 12. At the end of chapter 12, he's talking about the issue of vengeance and who should do it and who shouldn't. And he goes right on into chapter 13 saying that governments are set up to, to bring about God's vengeance. There's a flow here. It's a continuation of how we should live based on the fact that we're believers. Now, there's another major passage in the area of politics. That's 1 Peter 2. 
turn there for a second, leave a finger in, uh, in Romans. First Peter 2. Now this is the other major passage that's typically referred to politically. And usually, when one does so, one begins in verse 13 where it talks about submitting ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, which correlates well with Romans 13.1, which says the same thing. But I want you to notice what precedes it, beginning particularly in verse 9. Peter says here that we have a particular identity. We as believers have a particular identity. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Um, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were once not a people, but now we are the people of God. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mer mercy. And then he says in verse 11, I urge you as aliens and strangers. What I'm going to suggest to you today is that both Paul and Peter, in dealing with the political area, establish first who we are positionally and then deal with how we should deal in the political arena. And what they establish is that we are believers in Christ, that we are Christians, and that that means something as far as the way that we approach the political arena. Both of these major passages are preceded by this thought. Romans 12.2, we are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 1 Peter 2, he lays out a specific identity for us in which we are different. So I'm suggesting this. When we approach politics, we must separate ourselves from our culture. We must separate ourselves as much as possible from this world system. Politically, as well as in areas that are more popularly mentioned. Our approach to our political situation, whatever our political situation may be, whether we live in the United States or whether we live in Iraq, or whether we live in the Commonwealth of Independent States, or whether we live in Cuba, or whether we live in China. Our approach to our political situation is to be what is listed there in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. This isn't the only place that Paul talks about this, or that Christ, for that matter, talks about this. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, not will be, someday, but our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. In Ephesians 2.19, he says we are fellow citizens with the saints, not fellow citizens with the other people within our national boundaries, but fellow citizens with the saints. Jesus said in John 15.19, we are not of the world, but he chose us out of the world. In John 18.36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. The war my servants would be fighting. In Ephesians 6, 12 through 18, Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, he talks about weaponry in that regard as well. In Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, says we are strangers and exiles on earth. We are seeking a better heavenly country. 
So my question then is this. So? So what? We're, we are citizens of heaven, our, we're fellow citizens of the saints, we are strangers and exiles, we're aliens and strangers in First Peter 2, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, we once were not a people but now are a people, so what? Does it mean anything in our lives? And I'm suggesting to you that the placement of these passages suggests that it means something to us politically, as well as in other arenas. Now let me ask you this, and again, as I said, I want to ask you a number of questions and I just want you to think through these things. Um, as we go along, don't stand up and yell the answer. Do you think with a renewed, transformed mind when you enter the political arena? Or are you conformed to this world, namely American culture, American cultural heritage? Do you approach issues biblically and judge a political ideology in light of scripture? Or do you approach issues ideologically and then try to find or make biblical support for what your ideology teaches? Let's look at some issues. Capitalism. Does the Bible favor it over alternate economic systems? Lower taxes. Does the Bible indicate we should expect or demand them? You know, some students were concerned, and they came to me for some reason, I don't know why. Some students were concerned last spring that we had a guest speaker on campus who presented a very strong, logical argument for conservatism over a week of chapels, but didn't open the Word of God once in three chapels. Did you notice Welfare, Social Security, does the Bible have anything to say concerning those things? Christians, in debates on abortion, often say the Bible says life begins at conception. Where? The Bible never says life begins at conception. There are a number of passages where the Bible says that life begins in the womb, that's clear. Abortion is clearly wrong. It's clearly murder. It's clearly murder of a living person. But the Bible does not say life begins at conception. We take that argument from someone else's ideology and say the Bible says it. Should we do that? Should we ascribe things to Scripture that aren't there? Let's talk about education. The Bible does not teach, what Christians often say, that parents are responsible for their child's education. The Bible does say that parents are responsible for the moral and spiritual upbringing of their child, but it doesn't say anything about other areas of education. So should we say the Bible says that? Does it help our cause or do we lose credibility when someone discovers? that it doesn't say that. The Bible does teach some things that we don't spend any time saying or doing, for that matter. The Bible does teach that we should pray for the government in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, in Jeremiah 29, 7, 
In the Jeremiah situation, it was, a, it was people in exile who were oppressed and taken captive. And nonetheless, God says, pray for the government. Do you pray for the government? Or do you pray against it? The Bible never says to pray against it. The Bible does say to care and provide for the poor in Matthew 25 and in a number of Old Testament passages. Do we as Christians emphasize that? Or do we as conservatives say welfare is wrong, Social Security is wrong, Medicare is wrong, people are freeloading, the church should be doing this instead of the welfare system, and then the church doesn't do it. The Bible does say that we should love our enemies. In Matthew 5.44, in Luke 6.27 and 35, and a number of other passages. Do we do that? Or do we put up bumper stickers that say, Nuke Iraq? The Bible does say that we should obey the law in Titus 3.1. Do you obey the speed limit on the freeway? How does God feel about state-sponsored prayer in public school? John 9.31, Proverbs 15.29, Psalms 66.18 tell us that only believers really pray, and that for others it's an abomination. Matthew 6.1-7 tells us we shouldn't pray publicly just to have a moralizing effect or to repeat some state-written prayer. Have you ever considered God's opinion? I've dealt on a couple of occasions on the radio with supporters of Operation Rescue. And they always quote Rosa Parks, who started the, uh, the, uh, the busing thing as far as the blacks down in the South. And they quote Martin Luther King Jr. as support from America's cultural heritage for what they're doing. Which of them is inspired? Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King Jr.? Is there an epistle from Rosa Parks to a particular church that's inspired by God? What does the Bible say should be our response to government authorities? You know, there's an anti-authority element running through American history. Any scholar in American history or politics will tell you that there's an anti-authority element running through our history that stems all the way back to the Revolution. Can't get much more anti-authority than that. You know, when I was on the radio and I, point, and I pointed out that we should obey the laws, then I was asked, well, do you follow the speed limit? And I said, yes, I do. I drive 55 on the freeway. Whereupon the response was that I was a goody two-shoes. Here we have a perfect man. Should that be our response to someone who obeys the law? What does Romans 13 say? You know, I, it brought me back to second grade, where the kid that did the right thing was goody two-shoes, and you don't want to deal with him. Seems rather childish to me. Christians speak out. They speak out against abortion. 
They sign petitions. They picket. They even block clinics on occasion. Then they vote for a pro-abortion governor candidate because he's a Republican. Is God a Republican? Tommy Lasorda calls God the big dodger in the sky. Is our view the moral equivalent of that? Speaking of categorizing God, when it comes to war, is your God the tribal God of America or the Lord of all, who holds all nations accountable to the same standard? Why is it that we say that Saddam Hussein is dominated by Satan when he gassed 20,000 Kurds? But America's murder of 20 million of their own innocent children is dismissed as a reflection of the heart being wicked. Can we really open to Psalm 2 and apply the damning part of it at the beginning to Saddam Hussein and the praiseworthy blessing part to a country that produces and promotes the last temptation of Christ and Madonna that calls it art when someone puts a cross in a vat of urine a country that celebrates gay pride week and makes sure that the schools celebrate it too and whose predominant religion seems to be what I have termed Opraldo Donahueism. <laughs> Opraldo Donahueism is the belief that all belief systems are equally valid unless they claim to be the only valid one. Will you agree with me that's the predominant religion of America today? All belief systems are equally valid as long as you don't step on anybody's toes and say yours is the only one. Somehow that doesn't fit with the blessing half of Psalm 2 in my mind. Yesterday we heard a tremendous message, those of us who were at Grace, from Alex Montoya. Why is it that Alex Montoya can spend an entire message invoking the judgment of God from Micah on America. Point out America's wickedness. And people shout, Amen. Until, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> until, until someone questions an American action or suggests that perhaps God might be judging America, then nationalism kicks in and they're anti-American. Unless, of course, you say that the judgment that's coming is AIDS, because that's unpopular and we don't like the people who do that anyway. You know, foreigners, people from other countries, often ask why churches have our nation's flag in the sanctuaries in which we worship. Are we there to worship God? What's the flag doing up there? 
The Bible says in 1 John 5.19 and in John 12.31 and in John 14.30 and in John 16.11 and in Luke 4.5-8 and a number of other passages that Satan dominates this world and all of the national governments in it. What implication does that have for us? All right, let's look back at Romans 13. What I'm suggesting is, as Romans 12 says, we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds when we approach the political arena, as in every other area. The Christian's life is not categorized. It's a whole. So I've been asking you, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say anything? Blah, blah, blah. Well, let's look. Romans 13. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Who? Who? Thank you. Seeing if you're still awake. Every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Stop right there. I always wanted to say that. Dr. MacArthur says that so well. <laughs> Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, the way I read that, that means every person should be in subjection to the governing authorities, and that no authority exists except from God. Those which exist are established by God. Well, surely Paul's not talking about the Soviet Union. Uh, he can't be talking about Hitler's Germany. He can't be talking about Iraq. No, he's not. He's only talking about all authority. Those which exist are established by God. Verse 2. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. He who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. All right, let's look at a couple of principles here from verse 1 and verse 2. The principle of subjection and the principle of resistance. When Paul says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, does that mean you always obey them? Clearly not, because Paul spent most of his adult life in jail. So did most of the other apostles. Christ was crucified by governmental authorities. He's clearly not talking about absolute obedience. He is, however, talking about absolute subjection. Now, what does that mean? To be in subjection to the governing authorities means that you recognize their authority over you, you obey that authority with only one exception. And that is when the government, governing authority commands that you disobey God. At that point, you disobey. You obey the governing authorities 
to the point where they ask you to disobey God. At that point, you disobey. We have the example in Acts 4 and 5 with the apostles in that regard. We must obey God rather than men when the two come in conflict. But the principle of subjection is an absolute principle. So once you disobey, then you still remain in subjection and you accept the consequences. You recognize the authority of those over you. They have passed an unjust law. They have passed an ungodly law. You must disobey the specific law, but remain in subjection to their authority. And you do so by accepting the consequences, by accepting the punishment. Let go the next step, which is verse 2. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. You do not go the next step of resisting authority. Is revolution ever justified? No. Not according to God. If I disobey a law because it's, it tells me to disobey God's law, should I go limp? And make the authorities turn me away? Should I say that my name is John Doe or Jane Doe and not, not carry any identification so as to clog up the court system? For that matter, if the government isn't telling me I have to disobey God's law, should I be breaking another law? Specifically, if the government isn't telling me I have to have an abortion, should I be breaking trespassing laws? There's no biblical injunction against trespassing laws. He who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. You resist authority, you oppose the institution that God created. And they who have opposed, verse 2, they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse 3, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. If you want to have no fear of authority, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, is that always true? No, that's a principle. That's a proverb. It's a principle. Obviously, you're going to have, and Paul knew this, he wrote Romans during the time of Nero. But the principle is, if you want to have no fear of authority, do what is right. Now, verse 4, very important. Verse 4. For it, that is government, is a minister of God to you for good. Please note something. It does not say it should be a minister of God to you. There are a lot of people running around today saying, well, you know, Romans 13 says government should be a minister of God, and it's not acting well, so we can oppose it. It's not doing what God wants, so it's okay for us to oppose it, because it's not acting as a minister of God. That's not what Paul says. He says government is a minister of God. You know, God spoke in the Old Testament and referred to pagan rulers, pagan rulers outside of his people as my servant, my shepherd, 
He said that about Cyrus. He said it about Nebuchadnezzar and other pagan rulers. Government is a minister of God, not should be. This is not a laundry list of things that the government should try and qualify for in order to earn our obedience. Government is a minister of God. Why? What does it do? It's a minister of God to you for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. People, that's the purpose of government, biblically. To restrain evil. That's it. To restrain evil. Government does that. All governments do that. All governments are ministers of God who restrain evil. Some governments do a better job than others at that. But all governments do it. Some governments participate in evil. But all governments restrain evil. You know, the former Soviet Union had the lowest crime rate in the world. For whatever else we want to say bad about them, which there would be a lot, they had the lowest crime rate in the world. They restrained evil. Government is a minister of God to restrain evil. All governments are. Now, why should we be in subjection? Paul says we're to be in subjection. Why? Verse 5. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, in other words, not only because you'll get punished if you don't, but also for conscience' sake, because you know it's the right thing to do. Keep a finger here. Turn back to 1 Peter 2. It's amazing how two different writers on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit can say the same thing, isn't it? And yet, not many people pay attention to it. Verse 13, submit yourselves, same word as be in subjection, just a different place in the sentence, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Submit yourselves, he says, to how many human institutions? Every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, regardless of your political circumstance or situation, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, restraining evil. Here's another reason to do it. In Romans 13:5, we're to do it because of wrath and for conscience' sake. In 1 Peter 2:13, we're to do it for the Lord's sake. Because we call ourselves believers, we bear the Lord's name in this world. We are the body of Christ. That's why he says in the, in the verse before, and he's following on that idea, verse 12, 1 Peter 2, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that, the, that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. For the Lord's sake, submit yourself. Keep your behavior excellent. So they have to slander you to say anything bad about you. Why else should we do it? Verse 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
Now, Paul then says this. Go back to Romans 13. Verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. To what very thing? Restraining evil. So support them. Pay your taxes. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Notice he says, you pay them taxes for this reason. They are servants of God. Support them. Then he says, give to them what is due them. And he says at the end, honor to whom honor. Peter says, back in 1 Peter 2, verse 17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. When was the last time you honored the rulers of this country? It's become, first it became acceptable during the Vietnam period. It first became acceptable and then fashionable to rip on the President of the United States. And you know what? In my humble opinion, that destroyed the entire authority structure in America. Once the highest authority in the land that man recognizes is fair game for ridicule, then what other authority can stand? Next, the police became pigs. And then parents became someone from another planet. And with that, out went any discipline. And now we turn to the schools to discipline our children. Because we can't do it ourselves, because we don't want to treat them as badly as our parents treated us. We need a renewed understanding of the church as the universal society of God's people called to live biblically. Called to call the culture accountable. The church is the one institution with the capability to challenge the culture by an ultimate standard, by a separate standard, by God's standard of righteousness and justice. When the church transcends the culture When the church rises above the culture, it can transform the culture. The church can't transform the culture by becoming the culture. Only by transcending our culture can we transform it. But ultimately, is that our goal? No. Ultimately, our goal is to be faithful, to be obedient, and let God handle the results. Whether we make a difference or not, we should be motivated by obedience to God's Word. Another problem we have passed down from our American culture is we put far too much faith in political solutions. Anything that comes up, any problem in America, turn to the political authorities. President Bush, why didn't you stop Hurricane Andrew? What's wrong with you? Don't you care? Last night in the debate, President Bush, don't you care that people are starving in Somalia? Don't you care that people are dying in Bosnia? 
We have a moral crisis in America. What do we do? Turn to the political leaders. President Bush, President uh, Candidate Clinton, what are you going to do about it? We have a crisis in American families. What's the president going to do about it? Nothing. He has no capacity to do anything about it. But the church does. If we're the church, if we are distinct and unique and something separate from our culture, as was Christ and the apostles, if you want to think that the government can solve your problems, after chapel, read 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18. One of Dr. Stead's favorite passages. 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18. And find out what capacity the state has to solve problems. The church should not become just another interest group or a party trying to take over. We need to raise our view of the power of the sovereign God and lower our view of man's ability. Catch that? We need to raise our view of the power of the sovereign God and lower our view of man's ability. We should speak out, as believers, where and when the Bible is clear. But we should be diligent not to attach the Word of God to any political party or agenda. Let's face it, the Bible says nothing about the Panama Canal Treaty. So let's not say it does. What we do is we cheapen the Word of God. And we blur the line so that we don't know where the Word of God ends and America begins, or our political agenda begins. It's clear from a number of biblical examples that it's okay for believers to serve in government as long as their attitude is proper. Dr. Stead's other favorite passage is Mark 10.42. Read that for a proper attitude for those serving. And as long as success or power is not our goal, but faithfulness, then we can and should serve in government. You know, some will say, you know, Mr. Fraser, that was, that was a pretty negative message. I think you could have been a little more upbeat. Others will say, that guy, that guy's anti-American. What's wrong with that guy? My response is, I'm not anti-American, I'm pro-Christ. Were the prophets anti-Israel? Because they called Israel to account to God's standard? Let me close with a description of second century Christians. Our, forefathers, our real forefathers. In the sense that God would recognize it. Second century Christians, described in the epistle to Diognetus. Christians are not different, I quote, Christians are not different from the rest of men in nationality, speech, or customs. They do not live in states of their own, nor do they use a special language, nor adopt a peculiar way of life. Whether fortune has given them a home in a Greek or a foreign city, they follow the local custom 
in the matter of dress, food, and way of life. Yet, the culture, the character of the culture they reveal is marvelous. And it must be admitted, unusual. They live each in his native land, but as though they were not really at home there. Every foreign land is for them a fatherland, and every fatherland a foreign land. They marry like the rest of men and beget children, but they do not abandon the babies that are born. They share a common board, but not a common bed. In the flesh as they are, they do not live according to the flesh. They obey the laws that men make, but their lives are better than the laws. They love all men, but are persecuted by all. They are reviled, and yet they bless. They suffer insult, yet pay respect. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. My prayer is that that same description could be written about the master's college community in the 20th century. Pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you provided it to meet our needs, to give us guidance and understanding and wisdom. And I pray, Father, that we would learn to turn to your word first, that we would strive to develop a biblical understanding in the area of politics and indeed in every area of life, that we would understand that we are one person, not a categorized person. Father, help us to apply the truths in your word and to appreciate it and to thank you for it and to follow it. In Jesus' name, amen. You...